Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Joe Salustio here with you again. I got a cup of coffee in front of me. I'm actually headed out to uh, a meeting in uh, Arizona later today. And my uh, my leadership team here at Lindenwood University, or actually I'm in California because I'm obviously moving, for those of you that are following my journey, I'm moving from Southern California to St. Louis but all of the rest of the leadership team are in St. Louis and they're coming out to uh, Arizona as well. And so we're meeting there and their flight just got delayed. So they're not going to be able to go in and out burger. So because I found that out, I purposefully am going to go to in and out burger on my way to the airport and take pictures while I eat it. I don't know if you have, or my guests have had in and out burger, but it is obviously very, very good. Why am I talking about in and out burger on a higher education podcast? Because what else could you possibly talk about when you're talking about burgers? In and out is the best. I would like to find out what my guests think today as I bring them in here. Um, this is the this is the part of the episode where I tend to um, just kind of bloviate a little bit and talk about things. But I would encourage all of you, if you would not mind, of course, to head to www.edupexperience.com. Can't even say my own website, right? where you can go and you can find categories of all the episodes that we've done over time and find things uh, that satisfy your listening pleasure, self-gratuitous plug, uh, please visit um, and support us. We are trying to um, interview as many people as possible. And in fact, our president series is now like 145 college and university presidents. And we're like, do we do 200 before the end of the year? So we keep challenging ourselves and Elvin keeps scheduling me more and more podcasts. Um, we have a great combo of guests today, and we're going to talk a lot about college and access and all things um, that we need to be talking about. And I want to bring them in right now. Here they come. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Sandra, Chandra Scott. She's executive director at Alabama Possible. Chandra, how are you? I am great. It's exciting to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, absolutely. And of course, also with us, the VP of Communications and External Affairs at IHEP Piper. What's going on? Hey, it's great to talk with you. Um, I will say that I am looking forward to being in California later this year so I can have some In-N-Out Burger. Um, and while you're in Arizona, I'll also give a plug to NAU who just launched their Access to Excellence um, new program, which is really exciting. So when you yeah. finish up fries and burger, um, check that out because they're doing some neat work there. Northern Arizona University, correct, NAU? Exactly. And uh, boy, we interviewed their president, and his name is escaping me now. Jose Luis Cruz Rivera. How could I forget? Yeah. He was a very, um, yes, how could I forget part of our president series? And he was incredible. So that's that's amazing. I'm happy to have you uh, both here, Piper and, and Chandra, to talk about what's happening in higher education. But I want to start with you, Chandra. Tell me about Alabama Possible. By the way, it is a great name for an organization, Alabama Possible. I must agree. And so Alabama Possible is a statewide nonprofit. I've been around since 1993. We're headquartered in Birmingham. And believe it or not, Birmingham is not the capital of Alabama. Most people believe that. Um, but there is a lot happening in our state. Um, and I have to say, Alabama Possible's role and the core work uh, centered around our mission is just breaking barriers to prosperity. And that work is done through advocacy, collaboration, and education, which is what we're talking about today. So Piper, we're here to talk about degrees when due. So let's start with the most obvious question, Captain Obvious here. What is degrees <laughs> when due? 
It is a really exciting initiative, and we just released our final report last Monday, May 2nd. Um, it is a college completion initiative that is really designed to, to help people across the country realize their higher education dreams and to strengthen the nation's workforce and to build a fair and just country, like all, all the things that we want to see. And we were doing that with a participation of almost 200 institutions across the country from 23 states. Amazing. I'm really focused. It really was um, focused on identifying students who had needed to stop out and then bringing them back in and supporting them over the college completion finish line. And the things we learned along the way were absolutely amazing. But before I say anything further, I do want to make sure that I give a shout out to all the people who were part of this initiative. I am the, the, the one left here talking about it, but there were so many IHEPers before me, including Emily Sellers, Jennifer Pokai, Lacey Legwater, um, Julie Ajink. I always slightly mispronounce her name. I'm sorry, Julie Ajinkia um, and Leanne Davis, who were our superstars working on this initiative. And it just it would not have been possible without them. A great shout outs. But but tell me what you did learn um, before we move on. What are the highlights of that report? What I mean, this is such interesting work. What were the big takeaways? Yeah, there there are seven that I really want to highlight. I think that the one that is really eye-opening and i'll back up for just a moment and, and share a lot of the work involves something called degree audits which um some of your familiar your listeners may be familiar with and and some not as much um but that was digging into to transcripts and identifying where students were in their higher education journey and in some cases what we found were some students had actually already earned a degree that had not yet been awarded. And if you can believe it, in one in 10 cases of students who had a degree audit through Degrees When Due, they had already met the requirements for an associate or bachelor's degree, but the degree had never been conferred, which is just remarkable, the one in 10. Um, and met, for many of those students, the, the only barrier between them and their degree was not a matter of learning or skill development. It was something bureaucratic, like incomplete paperwork or holds on their accounts. And, and so that was just remarkable. They'd done the work already to earn the degree, but it hadn't been awarded. And a really key thing for us in Degrees When Do was focusing on the impact of, of you know, looking at equity and really looking at the impact of policies in inequitable outcomes. And so what we found, a lot of the barriers were, were contributing to those inequitable outcomes that we're seeing across the country today. We have Black, Latinx, and or Hispanic, Indigenous, underrepresented AAPI students, all are 30% more likely than white students to need to stop out of college. And so if we're identifying barriers that are in the way of these historically marginalized populations and we can remove them, then we're gonna be well on our way to, to having more equitable outcomes and having the just outcomes that we want to see from higher education. So those are three. I'll keep going because there's seven, but interrupt me yeah. anytime, Joe, because I'm gonna get on a roll and I love talking We about like getting this. on a roll over here, yeah. I'm, well, there's, let, let me stop you. Let me interrupt you at number three and, mm -hmm. and don't forget the rest. But I do want to bring Chandra in because she, Chandra, you played a role in, in participating in this. And there were members from 23 states and there was a big group of folks. Talk about your role and what the impact was of, of, of this whole participation process. 
were so I have to say I count myself lucky to be part of those 23 states, especially in the journey that I had with I help with the degrees from do initiative. Um, when I first began the degrees from do work, I was at another organization and it was only a regional nonprofit. At the time it was the Mobile Air Education Foundation. And so I was only working at the regional level. And so the scope was very small. So it was only focused on two institutions. Um, they were both community colleges. Um, but then when I moved to Alabama Possible, it allowed me to not only just expand the work of the organization, but now to bring in this focus around some college, no degree population at the state level. And so then this opened the opportunity for us to take degrees when due model and say, let's welcome in other institutions. And now we had not only two-year institutions being part of this work, but four-year institutions. And so I, I have to say that having that experience at the regional level really gave me the eye opening that I needed to understand um, some of the things that um, Piper just talked about. What were the barriers to the some college, no degree um, population? Those who were so close to finishing, what stopped them? What, what caused them to stop out and not be able to be re-engaged? And so in my role, I was, the title was the state liaison, right? So that was the, the title role that I was giving. But really it was just for me to really be a good listener um, to those institutions that were involved in the work. Because to me, they are the champions. They are the ones that with the boots on the ground, re-engaging the students, doing those exhaustive um, degree audits, sometimes without the proper technology. Um, to do so. So it was more of a manual process. But I was the one that got to be the good listener and then to be their voice when they were sharing what the challenges were, what the gaps were, and being able to go back to IHEP and say, here's what I'm hearing from them and connecting them with national experts to help them, you know, either hone their skills and communicating to the, uh, the targeted population, really understand how to do more work around degree maps that are more targeted for adult learners. On um, whatever the target um, need was, I, I have to say I was privileged to really be that pivotal point in the wheel to not only hear, but then elevate their needs and could be the connector for them to the resources that was gonna help make their students successful. Let me start, let me, before Piper, you get back on your role of going through four through seven, because I do want to hear the rest. I want to ask you, uh, Piper, you said 30% of, what was this, that 30% uh, more students, uh, what Latinx yeah. students and uh, black students, 30% more likely to stop out? Yes, than, than white students. Than white yeah. students. Why? Let's talk about the whys, right? Oh, because my that's goodness. a big chunk of, of folks, and I'll ask both of you what you think. That's a great question. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out how far out to, to zoom and thinking about this. Um, I mean, I think we need to look at the, the bigger history of, of higher education and, and frankly, of this country. Um, you know, the, the system that we see today was not built for the students that we have today. Um, and, and it's, I'm encouraged by the fact that they're so many more students now enrolling in in higher education we're seeing folks who are not from privileged backgrounds as we saw back in the day um who you know and let me be clear you know that the system originally was set up for for people who were very wealthy um, people who were white and people who were men and and 
that's you know just a reality if we go back and, and look at our history. And now we need a system that is able to serve all students. And in that, I'm including you know students who were historically shut out, um, Black students, Latinx, Hispanic, Indigenous, underrepresented API. We have students who are veterans, students who are currently parenting, students who are caretaking, students who are, you know, and I, I almost heard myself say the word non-traditional age, but I don't want us to even be using that word anymore because traditional is so outdated. It, it is everybody. I mean, it is truly everybody. And I know Chandra connected us with a student who had gone back to, to school and studied alongside of her son at the same time and earned their degree, um, you know, years after she had stopped out, right, because, because of, of a, you know, pregnancy and, and needing to raise her child. So it's just, I mean, any combination you can think of now, it's it's out there. And so we need to have our, our institutions, our system set up to, to support everybody. Sandra, Chandra, what do you think? Why, why are students yeah, so, of color, lower economic backgrounds more likely to stop out at a 30% increase? Sure, so I have to say Piper's on, on target there. I, I don't like to necessarily lay um, the cause and effect at the feet of the individual. It's more of a systemic issue. Um, just in Alabama alone, I know there were like over 62,000, some college, no degree, population across our state. Um, but then when you start to look at our institutions who were in re-enrolling or re-engaging adult learners and but how many they were completing, the ratio between black and, uh, and white students is still, it's still vast. The gap is definitely there. Um, and so you, there are so many layers to that. It's hard to kind of give this concrete one sentence answer as to why it's such a gap. You have, you know, income disparities. You have what I like to call under-resourced families. Um, so they're, they're doing the best they can with the resources they have. And so they have to be very strategic. And sometimes going back just isn't the, the right time. Um, and one thing I have to say that I'm sure we'll talk about more in this, in this call is that a lot of these students who want to come back, it's not the desire is not there. There's usually some type of debt left behind that they don't have the money to cover right now to be able to come back. And so to me, again, this is an institutional era. If you have a student who wants to come back and wants to finish that degree, why would you let a few hundred dollars be the barrier you know, to them being able to come back or access their transcript to further their education? So again, to me, it's such, it's such an onion um, to peel back many layers as the cause that leads to the effect of such a vast gap between um, you know, who's being able to be re-engaged and who's not across all states. And so to me, this is an issue that we have to really address at the policy level. Um, this is not, uh, I feel like a discussion that we have to figure out, well, how do we message ourselves better? How do we target students of color better? Um, they, they want to come back. There are various barriers in the way. And so I feel like leaders um, in this field um, have to figure out what policies and just like Harper said, the, the bureaucracy that's in the way um, that's preventing those populations from finishing what they started. Piper? Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that, Chandra. I mean, just to clarify, if I suggested for a second that any of the blame is at the, the feet of the students, I did not mean to, to suggest that at all. I think that- Oh, that no, we, no, not at all. I just okay. <laughs> like to be clear that in my in my explanation that I just feel like we have to make sure we shift the narrative mm -hmm. um, to showing that there are there's there's 
institutional barriers for these individuals. Um, you know, sometimes childcare is an issue, transportation is an issue. You know, how do we build systems in place to support those students with those type of needs? Um, you know, when you think about a student that's in high school, we make sure they have every support. If they don't have transportation, we get them bus to school. If they don't have food, we make sure they get lunch and breakfast while they're at school. You know, so why don't we take that same mentality for adult learners? Like what are supports that are needed so they're successful? Because in the end, the communities, the regions and the states win because now we have an upskilled mm -hmm. citizen in our state who can now take on jobs and careers that remove um, or to possibly break generational poverty in their families. Um, we want to make sure that that's, that's, the, that's the whole goal here is to put them in a position to get jobs that are sustainable, um, that make them promotable, that puts them in a position to access dollars that they have never been able to access before that provides a stable income um, for their families. Let them yeah. up. Yep. No, I, think it, I the have the same thing. Go ahead, Piper. Well, we, we talk a lot at IHEP about higher education being a pathway to a better living and a better life. And so I'm just, I, I'm grateful now that we're on a, a podcast and not TV because I've turned into a bit of a bobblehead. I'm just in here nodding along with everything you're saying, Chandra. I mean, completely agree. Hey, everybody, head over to www.edipexperience.com our website where you're gonna find all of the episodes that we've recorded categorized so that you can ensure that you're spending your time listening to the podcasts that are most important to you. You're gonna see the reviews of our podcasts, the shows in our network, our partners, and a section on starter episodes. If you're new to the Edup experience, listen to those starter episodes and get a feel for how the podcast has evolved over time and our impact in the world. www.edupexperience.com you know, let me ask you guys a question because I, 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 uh, this is, I used to ask all the time, like to people, what's, you know, what do you perceive as the value of a college degree? And I'd ask all the presidents that, and I ask everybody that, and everybody has a different perspective and so on. But the bigger question is this, especially as we're talking about students from a lower economic background, we're talking about, um, to your point, Chandra, you're talking about generational wealth. Okay. And it's not just about getting an education and getting an education for students of color, for people who are in lower economic background, they're doing to change, to change their whole life. It's not like you have a master's and you go into doctoral because you, you get the choice and you're already making a hundred thousand a year, right? We're talking about people that are mm -hmm. changing the lives of, of their lives and the people around them. And then we have this really confusing state of higher ed where you have this movement of, you don't need a college degree the college degree doesn't provide you value. There are other ways to become upskilled and it may not be the best path forward for you. And then there's the other kind of side. It's kind of like a pick a team here where it's like, yes, the college degree will help you uh, be, you know, attain more and get more and be more, but there is noise around the value of a college degree. And it's really interesting because we talk about access this, and this is a very long question, but I, I wanted to set it up right. We're talking about access and increasing access to higher education. And simultaneously, we have messages coming from within higher education and around in and around higher education that you shouldn't get a degree because it's not worth it anymore. And it's very, very confusing. And you think about a student who is from a lower economic background, how do you even make a choice when you have someone telling you, yeah, go to college and somebody else telling you, no, it's not worth it. I mean, I mean how do you 
get your arms around that? I guess that question is to both you guys, because this is something that I think is really serious for, for us in higher education to deal with. I'll be glad to jump in on that one. So we hear that noise here in Alabama as well. Um, but I always tell people and ask people to always think about who's the messenger in that message that says it's not worth it anymore. Find out does that person have a degree? Because, you know, sometimes you have to really be careful how you set people up to give this general message that, you know, a higher education degree doesn't hold value anymore. And usually people who are saying that probably have higher, much higher level degrees. Um, and, and so, but it's gotten them to the place where they need to be. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to have a higher ed degree, but when we look at the trajectory of where jobs are going, there are entry-level jobs that don't require you can get hands-on training through apprenticeships and things of that nature to and get hands-on training to get the job. But what I'm always preaching about, I have to say in Alabama, is let's not make let's make sure we're not setting people up to not be promotable. What happens when the right. job that exists today does not exist in three years? Because let's be honest, technology is moving at a fast pace. And so if I'm looking for the next person who can code the next generation of technology and you didn't get the degree of the training for it, then you probably have now become stagnant in my company. So I'm looking for the next bright, you know, shining penny person that comes in with that training. And most likely that person holds some form of degree or credential that understands this new technology. And so I always want to remind people that this is a constant phase of continuum. It's a continuum of learning. You know, whether you start off with a credential, an associate, what, however you start, to me, it's a pathway of upskilling and building yourself. Even if you start without a degree, but I do not believe in the narrative of putting out there for the masses that higher education or training in any form, it has no longer any value because we all see how careers have shifted. Look at the pandemic. Look how many people left the entertainment in hospitality business and have now did at-home training, upskilled themselves, and now may live in Alabama, but has a job um, that's located in California and making a bigger salary. But because they took the time to do a training, upskill themselves, get a certificate or a degree, because then now they had the time, then, you know, so to me, it just takes away... Um, to me, it hurts those individuals when they hear that type of narrative. It discourages them to do something they probably are thinking about doing. But then when someone comes along and says it, has, it holds no value, to me, you should always kind of do, you know, I said the Dr. Field question, well, how is it working for you now? You know, mm -hmm. you don't have the higher education. Do you have the career of choice and the income that your family needs? If the answer is no, consider what that next level could do for you. And but you have to be strategic about it. Do not get credential in something that in a job that's not even in your state, especially if you can't afford to relocate or find a remote job to hire you in that. So there are various pieces to that puzzle that I think a lot of people just like to just throw out this blanket statement. Oh, a degree is no longer value. You're right. If I have a degree in something that no one's hiring for in my state or where I'm living, you're right. It has zero value. But if I get trained in something that is a high demand in the workforce need and there's a gap in need, then I become a high commodity. And so I just think that people really have to be careful 
you know, how they're um, narrating themselves, because it does, to me, target certain populations. Um, you know, I just think you have to really watch who the messenger is when you hear that and look to see what what letters are behind their name, um, you know, because to me, they probably have taken the time to upskill and degree and credential themselves. But now they're telling everyone it's not worth it. And so that's my I'm going to get off my soapbox on that one. But <laughs> I will I will say that you do have to watch who the messenger is. But I think it's a dangerous, dangerous narrative when we're wanting to say that we want to increase the value of our citizens in the United States. We want, we, then you hear other narratives, but we want to make ourselves, bring ourselves back up on the chart of having the best and the brightest for the workforce where we don't have to outsource everything again. We can't get to that if we tell people training themselves and upskilling themselves is of no value. Mm. Piper, do you have any thoughts there? And then I want you to hit your four, five, six, and seven top lines from your report. Awesome. Will do. Well, I, I agree with all of that, Chandra. I mean, I, I think for me, if if there's somebody who says that people don't need higher education, but they wouldn't say that to their own children, to their the people in their family, then I have a hard time taking that advice seriously. I think that that what the word that's really striking me in, in our conversation right now is that word value. And we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the release of the findings of the post-secondary value commission that will be on, on March, I'm sorry, on May 12th. And and that the the momentum that we have seen in the field is just is so exciting. I mean, we are in the third wave when it comes to all things higher education, where at first we focused on access and getting people in the door. And even it, while the second wave focusing on completion, making sure that, you know, and this this ties into degrees when due, you know, making sure people get across the, the finish line, we're realizing how important that is. Alongside that, we're seeing it to whatever they are earning, that credential, that degree has to be one of value. And there's there's a whole, I mean, we truly published a, a, you know more pages than War and Peace in the commission's findings, but the the essence of it is is that pathway to a better living and a better life, and having the the economic and non-economic pieces, having everything that that you know we're really all the dreams that we we think about when we think about higher education. That's what that value is about. And I will, will not dive into all the thresholds and the framework of the commission, but I will say that there are six different levels when we talk about these thresholds. And T0 is, is one that just says, you know, are students better off having gone to college than if they had not? Are they better off than someone who had completed high school and stopped their education? And what is absolutely shocking is right now there are places where institutions do not pass that threshold zero. And, and that's something that I think we need to keep in mind as we're talking about the value of higher education, looking also at the value of credentials and degrees as we're encouraging people to go on. And I, I'm so, it, it just, it makes my heart happy, Chandra, to be thinking about the folks who are able now, you know, amidst all of the craziness of the past two years, if they're home and working on degrees and, and coming out of this stronger and, and ending cycles of, of poverty and building for the next generation, I think there's some really inspiring stories out there, but there's also so much more work to be done. Yeah, that's the, 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 uh, this is why I love asking questions that are kind of curveballs like that, because they, first of all, they strike nerves and passions. And when you work in higher ed and we're talking about value and 
you work in higher education because you want people to get higher education and increase access and have a better life. And it's hard when somebody says, well, you don't need that anymore. And, and it's like, really what it's almost kind of, I, I have to say, I, it's like offensive almost. It's like, really, you want me to turn around and tell students, my, my own kids that you don't need to go to college. It's, it's hard to believe um, that anybody would do that. And, and Piper, you, as you talk about degrees when due and you talk about degree audits, uh, which are confused, confused, are very confusing. Uh, degree audits uh, to understand, to pull off for institutions to have technology to do those things. So degrees when due, what other themes came out? What are those themes four through seven? Um, degree audits are definitely important, but what are those other themes? Yeah, I think, so not surprisingly in my role, I think a lot about the words we use and the narrative that we, you know, like the conversation generally. And, and what I'm seeing right now is a lot of conversation about the enrollment cliff and concerns about people not coming through high school directly into to college. And I think Yikes. that that... And this is the mark. There are millions of people who have already earned or really close to earning a degree and then had to, to stop out. And they're not coming immediately after high school. I mean, especially we see this with the pandemic. And I'll be curious to see, you know, revised numbers of just how many people do have some college and no degree. And if we're focusing only on that high school pipeline, then we're missing a lot of the, the bigger picture. And so that that's number four from degrees when due. Um, we'll get into those degrees audits. I know they are confusing. I want to make sure that people don't, don't leave this episode not understanding what they are. But I think the big takeaway from them is the identifying the barriers to, to completion. Um, you know, what, what stands in the way? And, and we found some really surprising findings across different institutions. You know, a course that was well-intentioned, for example, when it was first instituted, and then is kind of outserved its, you know, outlived its purpose and has become something where, you know, thinking about computer literacy. And if you've got students who are, are, you know, required to take a computer literacy course, and that's the one course that's standing between them and their degree. Meanwhile, they've been studying and attending online, you know, maybe that course is, is outdated. And so with a degree audit, it's a way for institutions to, to dive into their, their data and understand their practices and see what is it that's, that's blocking our students from making it across the finish line. And so that was something that was a really, you know, really helpful tool. I will say the degree audits are incredibly resource intensive. I mean, we, we need a lot of human capacity, technological and financial capacity um, to be able to do that. So that, that leads into some of our recommendations where we're needing to support institutions more to be able to do more of the, these audits. Um, I think that the last two, and I'll, I'll try to be quick, but you know, Focusing on on the needs of the workforce as well. I mean, it, it's no secret that we we need to have more people coming in and, and qualified. They're employers who are looking for employees, and and this is something when we meet the needs of these students, when we get the degrees and credentials in their hands, we have a more qualified workforce, and that serves everybody. And then the last thing I'll say is is that. We really found, you know, that the practitioners and, and Chandra speaks to this and, and sees this every day. Their voices are so essential and they're so missing sometimes from the policy debates. I mean, I would love to to bring everybody we talk to in, in degrees when due up to Capitol Hill and have federal 
policymakers hearing from them directly. And so that's something that we just, it really became clear to us in the course of this initiative, how many more connections we need to be making between what folks are seeing on the ground up to the folks who are making policy at the institutional, state, and federal levels. Yeah, I I, I want to say too with degree auditing, it's you know you're you're it's it's a confusing process. I want to go back to it because this is one of the like the secret things in higher ed is that you could have a student progressing towards a degree and the the decisions that you make in normal operations of a of running a college or university, like for example, canceling a course or changing electives, can dissuade, interrupt, disrupt a student's pathway towards graduation. And that's why you'll see, and I've seen it before, students take more credits than they needed to, um, have to stop out because the class isn't offered. There's all sorts of things that create, uh, what, interruption? And a degree audit allows you to look forward, at least, to say, okay, let's avoid these interruptions for the student. Let's get him the quickest pathway possible towards attaining this degree despite our internal operational decision-making. What do you both think about that? Because I think that's one of the missing parts of a degree audit is, yeah, we wanna look forward and say how the student's going to, to progress and complete, but, it, but we always have to remember that our internal decision-making in a university or higher education institution does affect every student's pathway, right? So we have to be cognizant of that. Absolutely. And I have to say, in being able to, to witness the institutions who are part of this work in Alabama, you hit something spot on is that a lot of the changes that, that can be made don't require taking it to the federal level. You know, it, it literally requires a meeting of the, you know, the faculty of the dean to deciding, oh, well, this, this really isn't making sense or we're realizing this is the class that's really clogging up the artery um, of completion. And that's understanding why you know, really doing this more internal reflection and making adjustments internally. Um, and I have to say a couple of institutions I have seen do an, an amazing job um, at that in, in Alabama. Um, I'll give one example. I hate to start naming institutions and not naming all, but one in particular I have to, to really talk about, well, two really, is Jacksonville State University, University of South Alabama. They really got strategic about their degree audits. They didn't use it just to figure out who to re-engage, but they did use it for those, those really internal reasons of looking at what courses were, were most of the stopouts happening, you know, which courses had the higher failure rates and to understanding, because sometimes this isn't a, a student issue. It could be the timing of the course. It could be a particular faculty member that could be the problem. All of these things can be identified in a degree audit. It's not just about saying, oh, who should we talk to or who should we should send a, a letter to to say, come back. What's the point of them bringing them back if you're not going to give them the right supports to get them through? And so I think that's what degree the audit should first start with. It should first be the, the line of defense of to identify what do we need to do internally to change the way we function. Um, someone gave um, the best example around, you know, re-engaging adults and I'm gonna have to steal it. They said, it's just like, you know, you, you run into your ex-boyfriend and he wants a second chance. Yikes. And you're sitting there thinking, ooh, do I go back? You know, I am single, I'm not sure what to do here. You know, he was okay, but he had some flaws, but he's telling you he's corrected himself. Access and denied. So, do you, <laughs> access 
absolutely. So, you know, you try to figure out, okay, do I give this boyfriend another chance? Do I re-engage an institution? Because the first time didn't feel right for me. The degree audit should help when that person makes a decision to go back. They have a better experience that you've removed this intro course that really makes zero sense for an adult learner. Like, why are you giving this adult learner um, an introduction to, you know, the institution course? Why, why is that still important? You know, if you don't change it to really speak to the adult learner and not to the freshman coming from high school. And so you have to just make sure that you're using the degree audit for two reasons. One, to make internal changes before you begin to re-engage the adults. So what's next, you guys? Piper, what's next? I mean, great report comes out. What is IHEP doing? What's what's the future look like? Yeah, oh, I love this question. Um, we are, are looking at ways to take all of this learning from you know, the past three years and then building on initiatives before that and say, where where can this continue and how can we help this continue? Um, we're looking at both in terms of, of practice, um, a lot of the things that we, we recognized with, you know, looking at degree audits, there were 30% of two-year institutions who were doing this by hand, which is just, I mean, the age of their software, the lack of resources, all these things contributed. So we could we created something, a degree mining tool that is freely available for any institution who wants to know how to get started and how to, to make the most of this process. So that's one thing um, helping at the institution level. We're also looking right now, I mean, there's a lot of conversations around more funding for completion, including at the federal level. And so we're going to continue our call alongside many of our partners in the field to, to fund, you know, put, put let's put our money where our mouth is. If we want to see a, you know, prosperous communities, if we want to see a strong workforce, we have got to invest in college completion. Um, and then a number of other things that are coming up um, that we have working behind the scenes. So stay tuned. And I look forward to, to sharing more about those soon. So you're not going to sh share them here exclusively on the Edup Experience podcast at this time. That means I got to have you back again, Piper. That, that I will, yes, again. yes. And I will say if, if there are funders out there that are interested, like if we've, we've, piqued your, your interest um, and there's more of this that you want to see out in the world, um, I'll share my contact info in the show notes. Yes, yes, yes. So a question to both of you to the end of the episode, Chandra, I'll start with you. What do you see as the future of higher education and anything, add anything about Alabama possible that you'd like to? Sure. I would say the future of education, especially in Alabama, um, I, I have to say I am proud to see the shift in the conversations and how we're starting to break silos down. There's no longer this finger pointing, you know, between higher ed and K-12 and workforce of who's to blame for the inputs and the outputs. You know, now they're all coming together saying, so what do we need to do to meet the demand of our state? We have an attainment goal of having 500,000 highly skilled credential Alabamians by 2025. Y'all, we're three years out. And so, here we are in the dilemma of what do we need to do to make sure we hit that mark. But I have to say what I'm loving that I'm seeing is that now everyone has truly aligned themselves around that attainment goal. So that was helpful to have this big hairy audacious goal that everyone kind of aspires to go to work towards. But what it has done around for us the some college no degree population, it has really brought together, I would say the business and industry with our two and four year institutions, especially our two year institutions. Um, they are really now seen as the hub in our state 
of being the, the place to re-engage and bring adults into the space of learning and upskilling up themselves. Now, I have to say, I spoke earlier about the barrier, the financial barrier that exists. It is real, um, it is vast, and it is really impacting a lot of people in our state to not be able to come back. And so right now, Alabama Possible is leading on this effort to introduce a debt forgiveness policy across our state. And so we're, we're look, calling it the stranded workforce because that's what they are. They want to upskill themselves. That's a great, great way to say it. Thank you. And to, to really get into a better workforce situation, but they're stranded. They can't get there because there's a hold on their transcript. They, they can't go back to the institution because the institution says until you pay this $500, you know, library fee, you can't come back. And so but, but let's, I want to be clear that the debt is not on loans. It is not a federal that these are institutional debts that have been left behind. And we have got to figure out how to really be smart and be reasonable and helping them to be able to overcome that debt by allowing them to come back and we find a way to forgive that as they matriculate through. And so that is really, I have to say, is really the work of Alabama Possible right now in that space. And I have to say, without the supports and the foundational grounding that I have gave us through degrees when due, I can for surely say we will not be positioned to really go full throttle on this work. Because of our partnership with iHelp, um, we have the resources, we have the experts and the tools that have really informed our institutional leaders to understand what are the impacts of being able to do this work, you know, to be honest, what's the bottom line? Because that's what they care about, the dollars, you know, what's the RI for them to be to being able to re-engage adults at their institutions and the impact that it has not only for them, but for the workforce. And so I have to, you know, I have to, again, just thank iHelp for really being leaders and bringing a spotlight um, to this work, because I have to say for a long time, this was not a big conversation around the some college, no degree population, and they have made it that um, with many other partners. And so the fact they're still driving it, even at the federal level, is very helpful because it allows people like me who are at a state level to be able to connect to that broader voice and bring in those practices into our state to really increase the potential um, of Alabamians and how they can um, now say that I can take part in a workforce that will help in generational poverty. Wow, love it, alabamapossible.org. If anybody wants to check out Alabama Possible, over to you, Piper, what do you see as the future of higher ed and anything about IHEP that you wanna add in? Yeah, no, I'll just say Chandra that, that it, it just, it makes my day to hear. I mean, it brings me so much joy to hear of the impact that we're having on the ground. I think that the key word is partnership. I mean, th this was truly just all of us working together at, you know, from IHEP, the state level institutions, all working toward this common goal. And the image that comes to mind for me when it comes to higher ed writ large is it feels like a Monet. And, and for so long, we've had, you know, the painting where you just can't see everything. It's just like a bunch of little, little, um, paint strokes and, and it feels like as as a whole, you know, a lot of people have had their, their nose up against the painting and just seen such a small portion historically. And now it feels like we're at a point where we're zooming out and seeing that bigger picture. And, and Chandra, you touched on this with, you know, the needing to support more transportation, see, making sure that students don't come to school hungry, making sure that the courses are in the right place, making sure that they have a, a sense of belonging. I mean, it is, it is everything and it is everybody. 
and that is what we're working toward at IHAP, making sure that we've got the, the credentials of value, that we're really providing all that higher education can be, that, that transformative. And I know that's a big word that gets thrown around, but we truly mean it. This is life-changing for all students, regardless of their race, their background, their circumstance. We want higher education to be that pathway to a better living and a better life. And bit by bit, I think all of us working together, we're getting there. Well, you said it, Piper, nearly one in 10, this is what I want to leave everybody with, nearly one in 10 students who received a degree audit through Degrees One Do had already met the requirements for an associate's or bachelor's degree, but that degree was never conferred. That is a scary stat. Uh, something that we need to focus on as, as higher education professionals to make sure students get those degrees, that we are conducting degree audits. Uh, because boy, would that if you were that one person, uh, how upset would you be if you didn't get that degree but had all, met all the requirements? So, uh, you guys are doing incredible work uh, at IHEP at Alabama Possible. Of course, IHEP.org is where you can go for the degrees when due tool and report. Um, thank you for joining me, ladies. It's been an incredible conversation. This has been I a lot of fun. Enjoying this, yes. And thanks <laughs> for the awesome sound effects. You're welcome. <laughs> Speaking of which. My guest today, of course, Chandra Scott. She's executive director at Alabama Possible. And we also have the vice president of communications and external affairs at IHAP, Piper Hendricks. Ladies, uh, how was your EDIP experience today? This was a lot of fun. I could talk to you every day, I think. We can, this we was an amazing that. way to spend my lunch. Yes. All right. Well, we can do that, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed up.